The scripture reading is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the, the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Thank you, Matt. Let's pray together before we dive into God's word. Father, I trust you to speak to us now in your word. I trust your promise that your word never goes forth without accomplishing your purposes. So we ask for you to accomplish your purposes in our hearts and in our church. May we be the body of Christ. Let this uh, build us up so we can so that we can more fruitfully honor you. Lord, help me to serve your people well. Let your word speak for itself and speak clearly and powerfully and help us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In our path through 1 Corinthians, um, if you'll recall, every summer we're returning to 1 Corinthians and we're just moving through the book. I believe very strongly in preaching through books of the Bible that way I can obey God's directive to me to preach the whole counsel of God's word. And that way we see all the scripture and not just the ones that I'm comfortable preaching to you. Uh, and today we come to one of those passages that's a little bit less comfortable than others. It's an important topic, but it is a sensitive topic. And I think it touches each one of us in different ways. But the topic will be sexual immorality uh, we started into that topic last week when we got into this passage. We only made it about halfway through the passage, and so we'll finish it, the second half of it, this morning. Sexual immorality comes in many different forms. Um, what this passage has in mind most specifically would fall under the categories of the biblical words of fornication and adultery. This is actual, physical Intercourse with someone, not your husband, not your wife. But it also has implications for all the other forms of sexual immorality, including those that would have been unimaginable to the people of Scripture's time now that we have all this technology. So it includes pornography and sexting, if you know what that is, and if you don't, that's fine. Um, it also includes even the worst of things, um, where sexual immorality is paired with violence. It includes things like sexual abuse and molestation and rape. Now, I recognize that these are very tender topics. These are, um, this is a very sensitive area that we're in here. 
But it's important for us to see that God's word addresses these things. God's word is not silent on these matters. And so our pulpits can't be silent on these matters either. And so here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, mainly looking at verses 15 through 20. And we're not talking about sexual sin in the world this morning. We're talking about sexual sin in the church this morning. Um, Paul has made very clear that he's addressing sin within the Corinthian church. And it is possible for these kinds of sins to get ingrained into churches. And we need to guard against it. And where we see it, we need to deal with it. So this is an important passage for us. What we find in the Bible as we look at this topic of Christian sexual immorality, when Christians sin sexually, is both unsurprising and surprising at the same time. What's unsurprising is that the main message is, don't do it. Now, none of you are surprised to hear that, I wouldn't think, that the Bible says don't commit sexual immorality. The, the main directives of this passage are flee from sexual immorality and glorify God in your bodies. Those are the two actual commands. Now, that's not shocking. What I do find a little bit surprising as I study the scripture on these issues is the reason and the basis for Christians to flee sexual immorality and glorify God with our bodies. You might expect it to be guilt. But actually, when you get into the scripture and you see what it says to Christians about these things, the motivator isn't guilt, but theology. It's not guilt, but theology that motivates the Christian to flee sexual immorality and glorify God in their bodies. Now, the word theology may have the effect of chloroform on you, and it might just make you immediately just want to go to sleep. Theology, doctrine. What I just mean is is just what is true. The basis for Christians to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God in our bodies is simply what is true. And in our passage, we'll see what is true about our union with Christ, what is true about the significance of sex, and what is true about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, these are theological things. And we're going to see how if we can get these clicked into place in our worldview and in our belief system, it'll have dramatic effects on the way we use our bodies, especially in regard to sexual immorality. I don't think the problem when Christians are ensnared in sexual sin is insufficient guilt. In fact, sexual sin tends to produce more guilt and shame than any other kind of sin. I think maybe instead it's faults in our beliefs, insufficiencies in our beliefs. Because the Bible teaches that our doctrines are what end up making our decisions, and our behavior follows our beliefs. So... If you are here this morning and you're in the grip of sexual sin, whatever that might look like, what I don't want you to feel is a squirming, uncomfortable guilt. What I want you to feel is an invitation to repent, turn from your sins to Christ and receive forgiveness and mercy and grace from God through Jesus Christ and the empowerment to forsake that sin and pursue God's glory. Now, some of you may be here, and that's just not an issue for you in your life right now. But maybe it will be next week, or maybe it will be next month. Maybe it's something Satan's keeping in his back pocket for you in a moment when you're just not ready, 
and then he'll bring the temptation out. And maybe this is a preparatory sermon for you. So you still need to listen. And maybe you're someone who this, this is not an issue and it will not be an issue. And I want to encourage you to be attentive to this scripture too because this will sharpen you for praying for your brothers and sisters for whom it is an issue. I guarantee you, you know people for whom this is an issue. And it will sharpen your counsel for them as we disciple one another and as we build one another up in Christ. So this is a passage for all of us, okay? Not just those who are deeply ensnared in this specific kind of sin. This is definitely for the whole church. So I hope you'll, you'll uh, be attentive to God's word with me here. Three theological truths. That's what I hope to give to you this morning from this passage, from the second half of it. We already talked about some last week. And the first one is this. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God in your body because of what's true about your union with Christ. Your union with Christ. Look at the first part of verse 15. Paul writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The Corinthians are embracing and accepting ongoing, unrepentant sexual sin in the church. And Paul's response is, Don't you know? Haven't you been taught or have you forgotten that your bodies... Your physical bodies are members of Christ. Because if you would know that theological truth, you wouldn't be embracing this. Now, one of the most common ways God explains the church in the Bible is through this metaphor of the body of Christ. A little bit later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12, we're going to see him really expand on this metaphor in a very beautiful way. I'll read one verse of that. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then he goes on to explain in chapter 12 that every new believer that's baptized into the church is joined to the body of Christ. Each and every one of you, insofar as you are a Christian, you are saved, born again, trusting and following Jesus. Your body, along with all of us, is a member of Jesus Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. Each of us serves a different function, just like each of your body parts serves different functions. Some of us will be like feet. Some of us will be like hands. Some of us will be like eyes. Some of us will be like ears. All functioning in our unique way as part of the body of Christ. What he's talking about there is the different giftednesses, gifted gifts that we have. Mine is not speaking, apparently. Some of us will be gifted teachers. Others will be gifted uh, helpers. Others will be gifted administrators. Others will be gifted evangelists. We're all uniquely equipped to be different parts of the body of Christ. Now, what that means is, and this is mind-blowing, if we can start to actually understand it. Our bodies, that's the language this passage uses, our bodies form the physical presence of Christ in this world in some way, in some mystical way. If Jesus is going to embrace someone who's down and out, 
He's going to do it using you as his arms. If Jesus is going to speak the truth in love and the gospel to someone, he's going to do it using you as his lips. If Jesus is going to go and, and save the lost souls in the, in the jungle tribes who have never heard of him, he's going to do it using you as his legs and as his feet. We are the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ in this world. We are the body of Christ. So where our bodies are, in some way, there Jesus is. So when you are at work, it is as if a member of Jesus Christ's own body is at your workplace. When you're in your car, it is as though a member of Jesus Christ's own body is in that car. When we're all gathered here, it is as though Jesus' own physical body is here. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Because if you have this theology fully in place in your worldview, you will see more than just yourself. You will see a part of the body of Jesus Christ. Now, this is amazing. For our purposes, we need to think about the implications this has for sin. Think about the implications of this doctrinal truth for Christian sinning. See, when we use our bodies for sin, we aren't just using our bodies for sin, we're using Jesus' body for sin. When we use our bodies for sin, we're not just using our bodies for sin, we're using Jesus' body for sin. We're taking members of Jesus' body and using them for sin. Those are Jesus' lips you're gossiping with. Those are Jesus' arms that you're hoarding and greedy with. That's Jesus' body you're using to hate with. And it's Jesus' body that we use when we commit sexual sin. And I think that this is especially true and especially important to keep in mind when we talk about sexual sin because of the second truth I want to tell you from this passage. The first one is about our union with Christ. The second one has to do with the significance of sex itself. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God in your bodies because of what's true about the significance of sex. Look at the second half of verse 15 on through 18. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? See, probably this prostitution that he was addressing had to do with the pagan worship practices in Corinth. And so these Christians, members of the church, were going and participating in this pagan prostitute worship. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Now, there's a lot in these verses to understand. For the church to embrace sexual sin, to be okay with it among its members, that church must first misunderstand how salvation unites our bodies to Jesus Christ. And then secondly, they must also misunderstand how sex unites two people's bodies together. Genesis 2, verses 23 through 25, it describes where uh, this good gift of sexual union between a husband and wife first came from. I'd like to read that to you. This is after God had created Eve out of Adam, and he brings Eve to Adam. Finally, a helper suitable for him. And it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One flesh. Now that's a phrase that you'll see throughout the Bible in a couple of different places. And it always has in view the whole life union of husband and wife. Not just the physical union, the whole life union of emotions, of finances, of relationships, of plans. The whole life union of husband and wife is encapsulated in this idea of one flesh. Now, sex is the highest and most intimate physical expression of the one flesh union. So in terms of the physical aspect of the one flesh marital union, sex is the highest expression of it. And within that marital union, it is good and it is beautiful and it is God-ordained and it's wonderful and it's valuable and precious in his sight. But we need to understand exactly theologically speaking what's happening when people have sex outside of marriage, either premarital sex, a couple who's planning to get married but they're not yet, or extramarital affair, someone who is married, having sex with someone who's not their spouse, or what the Bible calls fornication, which is just, just two people who aren't married to anybody having sex together. We need to understand theologically what's happening when this happens. Those two people are becoming one body with each other without becoming one flesh with each other. They're becoming one body with each other without becoming one flesh with each other. And that is a grievous misuse of a glorious gift. It's a wrong usage that defiles and can even destroy the gift. It's as if I gave you a $100 bill, instead of using it for its intended purpose, you use it to clean filth off the bottom of your shoe. Or it's like using an American flag and washing your car with it. It's something valuable. It's something significant. And you're using it like it's trash. You're using it completely apart from its intended purpose. And in this way, sexual immorality strikes at the body in a more severe level than other sins against the body. 
It's very difficult to understand what he means in verse 18 when he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Well, surely other sins are against our own bodies. If I am a drunkard, that is against my body. If I'm a glutton, that is against my body. Somehow, sexual immorality is against the body in a unique way. In a way that when compared to it, nothing else is really against the body like sexual immorality is against the body. I think, and I say I think here on purpose because he doesn't spell out what he means, but I think what he means is that no other sin unites the body of one person with the body of another person in a way that is specifically designed for the one flesh union of marriage and then rips those bodies back apart. No other sin does that. Drunkenness does not join my body with another person's body in a profound way that is meant for the union of marriage and then rips us back apart. No other sin does that. Our culture absolutely has way too casual an attitude about sex. But the problem we're addressing here is that the church often has way too casual an attitude about sex. We laugh at sexual immorality on TV. We flirt with it in reality. We secretly binge on it with increasingly vile pornography. We carry it around in our pockets on our smartphones. We embrace sex before marriage as just part of living in this culture now. and sort of a don't ask, don't tell tolerance. And we must not be so casual about it. This question I'm about to ask to me, gets to the heart of the significance of sex. And it's a hard question for me to ask, and I don't ask it callously or flippantly. But if sex can be casual, if it can be almost recreational the way our culture pretends it can be, then why is rape so bad? If sex can be casual and even recreational, Why don't we look at rape as just another form of bullying, just another form of violence against another person? Because we inherently know this. We know that's different. We know those wounds don't heal even once the body heals. Sex has real significance that makes sexual sin different than other sins in this way. You know, with all the confusion about sexuality and the culture, you've probably heard it said, and I'm sure that I have said, homosexuality isn't worse than other sins, it's just that you need to repent. But I think there is a sense in which we can say that sexual sin is worse than other sins in terms of how it affects our bodies. Now, it's not worse than other sins in terms of God's willingness to forgive, you know, all sin is the same in that it separates us from God and bars us from heaven unless we receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ. So the person who uh, struggles with 
some sexual sin is not less likely to be forgiven than the person who struggles with gambling or something else. But in some way, sexual sin strikes at the essence of our bodies that's different from other sins. We need to see sex for what it is and sexual sin for what it is. It's always wrong. But for our purposes here, let's consider the theological implications of Christian sexual sin. Not only do Christians, when they sin in these ways, become one body with someone that they're not one flesh with, but they take the members of Christ because they are united to Christ. They take the members of Christ and unite bodies with someone that they are not one flesh with. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. One more doctrine before we conclude. Flee sexual immorality and glorify God in your body because of what's true about your union with Christ, because of what's true about the significance of sex, and lastly, because of, what, because of what's true about the indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Look at verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. See, when you become a Christian, not only are you joined to the body of Christ, but you receive the Holy Spirit. If God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. Now again, this is mind-boggling, and I can't fully comprehend it. But the Holy Spirit dwells within each Christian. And Jesus taught when he was about to be crucified and ascend into heaven, he told his disciples, it's better for you if I go, because if I go, the Father's going to send the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to have God's presence not beside you, but within you. And so that's what we enjoy today as Christians. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, not a house of the Holy Spirit, not a home, not a shed, not an apartment, a temple. One of the resources I was using preparing said that this indicates that our bodies are sacred places. Our bodies are sacred places in which the Spirit not only lives, but is worshipped, revered, and honored. Again, when you look in the mirror, I hope you don't just see how your hair looks today or if you need to shave or not. I hope you see a member of the body of Christ and a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this changes the way you view sin. You know you view sin differently when you're sitting in this pew than when you're sitting on your couch at home. I've told you this before, but a while back, 
I had a brilliant idea with the youth group as I was trying to teach them about not exactly these things, but something along these lines. And I had them pick out a movie that they thought they would genuinely enjoy, not a Christian movie, but a movie that they would enjoy. And we would watch it one night at youth and we would talk about it in light of the Bible. And I told them, you know, nothing too, nothing too crazy. And so they picked out a movie that they felt like would be okay at church. This is clean compared to a lot of the stuff we watch. And so we queued it up in the youth building. And I was uncomfortable from the very start and realized what a mistake I had made. And thought, man, if somebody from the church walks down here, I'm getting fired so fast. And then sure enough, someone from the church did walk in. No, during youth on Wednesdays, nobody comes through that building except for that night somebody did. And they were going down to the basement to, to grab something. And they walked in just as you would expect, like your parents would, at the worst part of that movie. And you could just feel the tension in the room. Because there's something about being at church that when we bring the sinful pagan stuff that we're comfortable with out in the world in here, we see it for what it really is. And what Paul is teaching here is you carry that with you everywhere you go. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. This also means that we are not our own. And this is really significant. It says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That means you don't belong to you, and I don't belong to me. What a radical thought. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we give our lives to Jesus Christ, or we don't give our lives to Jesus Christ. There's no halfway. No, well, you can have me on Sunday mornings, but otherwise I'm mine. No, Christianity is a fully giving ourselves to Jesus Christ, and we're no longer our own. Some of you know we have a house in Albemarle. It's where we were living before we came up to the church and moved into the parsonage. And uh, it sat there for a long time, and I would go out on Saturdays and work on it, try to get it up to speed to sell it. And so I'd go out there, and I would come into the house, and I would just make myself at home, I would plug up a speaker with music. I would leave my lunch trash on the counter after I ate and get back to work. Come and go as I please. Now, we weren't able to sell it. We were able to rent it. As soon as those renters moved in, my rights to just come into that house and do whatever I wanted came to an abrupt stop. I now had to have permission. And it was like the the whole house was transformed. It was bizarre almost. That's kind of the way it is when we give our lives to Christ. The Holy Spirit moves in, and he's not renting, he is owning. And now we need permission for what we do with our bodies. It's not ours anymore. Somebody's living there. It's God himself. Flee from sexual immorality and glorify God in your bodies. Why? Because God's going to smite you with a lightning bolt? No, in Jesus Christ, you are safe within his pardon. You are forgiven and justified, and God looks at you and sees Jesus' perfection and righteousness. Don't flee from sexual sin and glorify God with your body because I am making you feel guilty right now. Flee from sexual immorality and glorify God with your body because of what's true. 
you are united to Jesus Christ. Sex has profound significance. And the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Now, if you are not united to Christ in the church and you are not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, you have no idea what I'm talking about with those things, then your first step is to repent and turn from your sins and trust and follow Jesus Christ. Turn to him and receive forgiveness. Turn to him in repentance and confession of your sin. And be washed clean, be made new, be embraced by the Father through Jesus' death on the cross on your behalf. It's totally possible to attend church and not be part of the body of Christ. It's absolutely possible. Happens all the time. Don't let that be you. It's possible to hear about Christ but not be joined to him. It's possible to hear about the Holy Spirit but not be indwelled by him. Repent from your sins. Trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Follow him as your Lord. Be joined to Christ. Receive the Holy Spirit. Start right there. Now, if you're a Christian and you're living in sexual sin, flee from it. Flee from it. That means escape it. Run away from it. Break up with that girlfriend or boyfriend. End that flirty relationship. Cancel Facebook if that's where the temptations come. Destroy your smartphone if that's the avenue. Flee from it. You don't, you don't have to pursue sexual immorality. It's pursuing you. And that's why you have to flee from it. Don't mess with sexual sin. It's too serious. Now, if you're a Christian and you're sagging right now under the weight of guilt and shame due to your sexual sin, I just want to remind you of God's grace. Jesus, as we saw last week, Jesus has absorbed all the debt and guilt and shame of your sexual sin, as, along with all of our sins, those of us who trust and follow him. He took that on the cross. He became sin for us so that we could become in him the righteousness of God. We have an enemy that wants to whisper in your ear and say, see, even Pastor Matt says it. You're terrible. You're awful. You'll never be free from this sin. God looks at you and shakes his head and he hates you. That's not true. Now, in Jesus Christ is mercy and grace and forgiveness. Adoption as sons and daughters. Justification. You're actually made innocent, genuinely, really innocent in God's eyes. Sanctification. You're set apart from these things for a holy life lived on purpose to glorify God. That is yours in Jesus Christ. Even if you are struggling with this sin. If you're a Christian and you have this sin in your life and it's unconfessed and unrepented of, this is your opportunity to do that now. In prayer, in a few moments, just confess the sin to God and say, I I repent, help me in my unrepentance. I need your help to repent. I need your help to turn from this. If you want somebody to pray with you through these things, I would love to do that. Do it right here, right now, or pull me aside after church and we'll pray together. Or call me this week or some other Christian friend that you know. And for all of us, the message is glorify God in your body. Use your body in light of the fact that God is the most weighty reality in all of reality. Use your body in light of the fact that you were bought with a price and you're no longer your own. 
This is what you were created for. This is what your body is for. I'll close with verse 13 that we saw last week. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Lord, let not one of us escape this sanctuary without having been changed by it. May we not just agree that these doctrines are true, but may we lock them into place in our hearts and our minds as a permanent part of our worldview, our way of seeing reality. Let us live as those who are united to Christ. Let us live as those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.